Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. Two Sundays ago, I preached on the first half of 2 Peter chapter 3, and now this morning we're looking at verses 10 through 18. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved Paul, brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know that this beforehand, and beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. When the first half of this chapter, we saw that the apostle Peter was concerned about the scoffers and the mockers in the church. And throughout this epistle, he has told us that in the latter days and in the church age, there will be false teachers, there will be mockers, there will be scoffers. And now in this second half of this chapter, though he does mention that, his concern here is what is our response to the revelation of Scripture and to the coming judgment of Almighty God upon planet Earth. Now, there are some people today, some Christians, who object to this kind of language. You say, what kind of language? The idea that it is undeniable that the Bible presents an us and a them perspective. The world out there, them. Those of us who know the Lord as our Savior, us. Um, the fact is, there is, a, there is a fine division there. It is black and white, as we will see. We need to understand that there are people out there who will lie, who will curse, who will deceive, who will even murder. We need to teach our children that this is reality. But we need to teach them that that is not us. That is not a Christian. That is not a Christian home. And so we need to continually remind our children that there is a world out there that is distinct from us. And hopefully, if we are living a Christian life, that our home is truly distinctively Christian. Well, these Christians in the first century were experiencing not only the false teachers, but they were experiencing real persecution. And so Peter wants to write to them. He wants to encourage them. 
He wants to tell them and remind them that the day of God's justice is coming. And I think that's a message we in the church need today. We need the encouragement. We need to be reminded that God is not asleep on the throne, that God is fully aware of all that's happening in the world, all that's happening in our culture, that God's justice will one day reign supreme. Nobody gets away with anything. Nobody's getting away with anything. And whether they... Uh, reap what they've sown in this life, which they surely will, but they will surely stand before a just and righteous God in the next life. And God will have the final word, and God will have the final say. And the day of justice, a day of judgment from Almighty God, is coming upon planet Earth. And if we live, uh, if we do not live to see the Lord return, for his church, and then the tribulation and judgment and all of that. If God calls us home, then we're going to stand before that God of justice. We're going to stand before the Lord ourselves. So whether he comes for us or we go to him, we have that hope. But we also understand that for the unbelieving world, for them out there that mock Christ, that do not believe in the word of God, to think that, you know, the Bible is just foolishness, that there's a day coming, and it is a day of judgment. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments will be fulfilled. Make no mistake about it, they will be fulfilled. God always keeps his word. And so notice verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. It doesn't matter what the scoffers say. It doesn't matter what the agnostics say. It doesn't matter what the pundits on TV say. Jesus Christ is returning again. And he's going to return ultimately in power and great glory. And he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Peter is focusing here upon the final judgment of this world. He's not setting a timeline. There are other passages of Scripture which break down the different aspects of Bible prophecy, but Peter here is concerned about the final, ultimate culmination of God's plan for planet Earth. And he connects this to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there are certain details of prophecy that we can differ about, but there are certain things in Scripture that are crystal clear. And that's what Peter is talking about here. It is crystal clear in Scripture that Jesus is coming back again. And when he comes back, it's not going to be in obscurity like the first time. Every eye is going to see him. Nations will mourn because of him. And he's coming back in power and great glory. And he's coming back to render justice, final justice upon planet Earth. Now, what is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is the future time of God's direct intervention in the world. Remember, what was one of the accusations we saw two weeks ago of the scoffers? There's been no divine intervention in the world. You can't find any evidence in history that God has ever directly intervened in this world. And so if you remember, Peter gave two evidences of that. One is creation, and the other is the flood of Noah. Those agnostics and unbelievers who want to believe in evolution and rather than believe in creation, they have some real problems. Do you realize nothing plus nothing equals nothing? How could everything come out of nothing? How is it possible? Why does the universe even exist? 
And how can we even know the universe exists? Why do we know that? I mean, this idea that this all came by chance, and it, it, it's not even logical. And yet people would rather believe the lie of Satan than believe the truth of Scripture. Because if you accept the fact that there's a divine creator, then you accept the fact that there's a standard of morality. You accept the fact that this divine creator, who has the power to speak the universe into existence, is the same one who's going to come and judge the world. It's interesting how they deny the flood and they deny the creation. And all the way back, seven generations from Noah, there's a man named Enoch. The Bible says about Enoch that he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, it says that Enoch was translated like Elijah. He went directly up into heaven. I personally believe he's a pre-type of the rapture. God took him before the judgment of the flood. But Noah was a prophet of God. Now think about how early this is. This is seven generations from the creation from Adam and Eve. This is right before the flood of Noah. And this great prophet of God records these words. Jude records them for us. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. Also saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Some of you remember Oliver B. Green on the radio. Nobody could read those verses like Oliver B. Green could read them. Now, I, re I can still hear his voice as he would read this judgment of God upon these ungodly men of their ungodly ways and their ungodly deeds. This was Enoch, centuries and centuries, millennia ago, who prophesied, and this prophecy will surely come true. Now, two Sundays ago, we talked about the fact that God had put within the creation of the world the means to destroy the world by water. And so we've wondered, has God done the same thing with this final destruction by fire? Now, God certainly, as he spoke the universe into existence, he can speak the universe out of existence. But the Bible clearly says that the final judgment will be by fire. We saw two weeks ago, it is preserved and reserved, this current, present universe, for this final divine judgment. And we wonder, has God put within this creation the means by which to destroy it by fire? On March 9, 1979, nine satellites stationed at various points in the solar system simultaneously recorded a bizarre event in deep space. It was, in fact, the most powerful burst of energy ever recorded. Astronomers who studied the readings were in awe. NASA's satellite and space telescope observed an unusually bright burst of gamma radiation. The explosion unleashed an energetic jet of particles that traveled at nearly the speed of light, researchers said. The burst of gamma radiation lasted for only one-tenth of a second. But in that instant, it emitted as much energy as the sun does in 3,000 years. If the gamma ray burst had occurred in the Milky Way galaxy, said one astrophysicist, it would have set our entire atmosphere aglow. If the sun had suddenly emitted the same amount of energy, our Earth would have been vaporized. I don't know how God's going to do it. I don't know how God is going to destroy the world, the universe, by fire. But he certainly has the means and he certainly has the power. And there's even evidence within the current universe 
of that power. Well, Peter might respond to some of his listeners as, okay, so what? So you've, co- you've told us this prophecy, so, so why is it important for us to know this? So Peter now wants to apply this truth to the lives of believers. Does God just want to make us know something about prophecies to make us smarter sinners? I don't think so. God has a purpose in what he reveals. And so we find out from what Peter's going to write that our belief in the return of Jesus should be altering our behavior. Now you see this throughout the scripture, belief and behavior. What we say we believe should show up in our behavior, should show up in the way that we live our lives. And so Peter gives some very practical uh, admonitions here. He says, number one, we need to be continually taking inventory of our lives. We need to be continually taking inventory of our lives. Verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. I was getting better uh, quicker than, than Sally was, and um, so she sent me to uh, Walmart to get some personal things for her. So I go into the ladies section, and there are men everywhere. See, my goal was to kind of sneak in, grab something, and leave. And so there's all these men, and I was like, what are all these men doing in the women's section? And then I re- realized they were doing inventory, and um, lucky me. And um, Every now and then you need to do inventory. We're not going to hear about spiritual inventory. Actually, the original text here, this is a sentence. It's, it's not really a, a, a question. We know that sin no longer reigns in our lives, but it does remain in our lives. So even as a Christian, I know the old nature is still there. It doesn't dominate my life like it used to. I have the Holy Spirit, but it's still there. So I think what Peter is saying is, uh, what areas of my life need some cleaning up? What areas of my Christian life have I become lax in? What areas of my Christian life need some cleaning up? A mature Christian will still have areas in his or her life that needs to be addressed. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. If we say that, well, you know, and if, if we start making excuses and rationalizing our sins, I need to compare my life with Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 23. What do you mean compare it with Galatians 5, 19 through 23? Well, let me read that for you. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Pretty black and white list, isn't it? So, what areas of the flesh, what fleshly deeds do I need to be confessing? Nobody lives a perfect Christian life, even as we mature as believers. We still struggle with certain things. So, what what needs to be confessed? What spiritual fruit is lacking? 
or, or is not as vibrant as maybe it once was in my Christian life? You know, am I really honest with myself and honestly taking inventory? First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word hastening in this verse adds the idea of eagerly desiring his return. The word translated to coming is parousia, which is literally his presence. If I die before Jesus comes, I'll be in his presence. If I live to the time of Jesus' coming, I will be in his presence. I will be in the presence of a completely, absolutely righteous, holy person. And so part of the preparation for that is taking spiritual inventory of my life. And we need to keep a forward perspective a forward perspective, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, Paul uses very similar language. You know, uh, we should be uh, looking to heaven, waiting for the Lord Jesus. Uh, he's our life. So what exactly does that mean? Well, the day of God here is the eternal state when God recreates the heavens and the earth. So how do, we, how do we live practically looking forward? I mean, are we supposed to just let things in this life kind of, you know, neglect them and only think about spiritual things and only think about our spiritual future and our, and our heavenly home? Um, should we abandon family and all of that here? I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think he's saying, how do I... How do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? What is there of eternal investment in my life? What is there of eternal investment in my life? Have I just fallen into being a Christian materialist? That my focus in life is the things of this world. He's not saying you can't have a nice home and you can't provide for your family and there's a very definite correlation in the Bible between hard work and, you know, material things and all that. It's the idea of what's the priorities in my life? Where's the eternal investment that I'm making with my time and my talents and my money and my time? The word hastening here is the idea of eagerly desiring his return. We need to keep a forward perspective, a forward perspective. He's not calling us all to be monks, you know, and just forsake all material things. It's the idea of keeping balance in my life, keeping balance. In this culture, materialism is such a danger for all of us. We need to keep that balance between the, the, the today and the eternal. And then we need to be intentional about living our Christian life, being intentional. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. I like the fact that Peter doesn't say, well, just, just do better, you know. Um, just be a little more Christian. No, he gives us some pretty specific things here. You know, he tells us to be diligent, to make every effort. You know, we can be diligent in areas like physical fitness, like in watching over our finances, our health? Do we apply the same diligence to our Christian life? You know, a Christian is not someone who lives like everyone else. 
Oh yeah, there's part of, we're in the world. We're, we're not of the world, but we're in the world, but we're not out of the world either. But our lives should have a distinctly Christian flavor about them. The Christian life is not an add-on. It is our life. Now, peace here, if I found by him in peace, is the fruit of the Spirit. You know, short accounts with God, short accounts with others is the idea. Do I experience that tranquility of soul because of the way I'm living my life? The whole world is in turmoil right now. Um, how are you doing? Are you overcome by worry and anxiety? Or do you rest in the confidence in the, in the word of God and the promises of God? and settled peace of God. I don't like the way the culture's going, but I know God has a purpose and a plan, and I know he cares for me, and he watches over me and my loved ones, and you and this family, our church. So I'm not, I'm not filled with turmoil. I'm concerned, but I know there's a God in heaven who's still on the throne, and I know that he's in charge. And nothing can pass into my life that doesn't pass through his loving hands. And so one of the first evidences of sin in the believer's life is a lack of tranquility, a lack of peace. The words found by him remind us that we will stand before him. Now he gives us two areas that we should be watching out in our life. He says to be spotless is to be without any moral defect. It refers to our character. To be blameless means no charge can be brought against us. This refers to our testimony. You know, Billy Graham lived a long and fruitful life, and it was said of Billy Graham that no one ever brought an accusation against him. No one ever brought a charge against him. I heard someone say recently that if Billy Graham was on an elevator and a woman stepped on, he would step off. Billy Graham was so conscious about, he was so well-known, he was so conscious about his personal testimony. Nobody could bring a charge. It didn't mean he was sinless. He would have been the first to tell you that. But it means nobody could bring an overt charge against him. Is that true of me? Is that true of you? Am I free from moral stains and without nagging guilt? Do I struggle with nagging guilt because there's areas in my life that I know the Lord is not pleased with? You must see this in balance. James 3, 2 says we all stumble in many things. And I remember my standing, our standing before God is in Christ. It's not dependent on what we do and what we do has to do with pleasing our Savior. And I'm secure in my standing. But as far as my relationship with the Lord on a daily basis, I cannot be perfect in practice, but I know God is perfecting me. If you're a Christian, God is perfecting you. And um, Sally and I went through a trial this week. And I've learned in my life that I grow more in trials. I don't like God's program, but that's his program. And you know that's true as well. What is, where's the evidence in my life of God's perfecting work? That's a good question to ask ourselves. Where can I look in my life and see, oh, this is God's perfecting work. I can definitely see God working here. He's making me more loving, more forgiving, more, he's making me more grace, you know, less judgment. He's making me more like Jesus, Romans 8, 29. 
And then lastly, we need to be continually growing spiritually. You know, in verses 15 through 16, Peter talks about the apostle Paul. And, and Paul does write many of the same things in, in context that Peter does. But I like the fact that he says in verse 16 that some of the things that Paul wrote are hard to understand. <laughs> Peter thought they were hard to understand. I don't feel so bad. But he, his concern is that some people are going to, untaught and unstable people are going to twist it to their own destruction. It's the idea of twisting an arm or a shoulder out of joint. It's kind of a violent word. There are people out there who will wrest the scripture, who will twist it out of context. And those false teachers abound in our day. And he's telling us to beware so that you, therefore, verse 17, beloved, he talked about how he uses this word beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory in both now and forever. Amen. What's the antidote for not falling prey to these false teachers? When he says, beware, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to be growing. I'm supposed to be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. He's not concerned about losing salvation. He's concerned about straying away from, from solid doctrine. Straying away from your doctrinal stability. You know, there's so much out there. I mean, with the addition of the internet, it's just worse. And all kinds of offshoots and all kinds of weird theories about the Bible and about different aspects of Scripture and, you know, how to grow spiritually. And somebody always comes up with, you know, the old adage is if it's, if it's, if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. It's the, it's, the, it's the standard of Scripture, the biblical truths and doctrines that have stood the test of time. But everybody, every now and then, comes out with some new thing, and unfortunately, immature Christians gravitate to those types of things. You need to, you need to establish biblical, you know, uh, biblical truth in your life, biblical stability. Do you know what you believe? Do you believe what you know? Are you settled in your doctrine as far as what you believe? We had our first new member seminar before this service. First thing we go over is doctrine because doctrine is so essential to know what this church believes and understand what we believe and teach. And though there's some areas that we can have disagreements on, but I pointed out there are certain areas that if you don't believe this, if you don't believe in the deed of Christ, if, if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection, we don't want you to join our church. There's other things we can, we can differ on because what we believe is so essential and will determine how we behave. The antidote is to grow spiritually. Alistair Begg calls it a long obedience in the same direction. That is really good. A long obedience in the same direction. Every now and then, somebody's going to come out and say, boy, if you have this experience... If you have this, this is some new, this is going to catapult you into spiritual maturity. It's not possible. It's a long obedience in the same direction. A solid biblical foundation you can build your life on, you can build your family's life on, you can help your children build their life on. It has stood the test of time, generation after generation. 
In a few years, this church will be 100 years old. Can you imagine? 100 years old. And I told the group this morning, I am not the founding pastor. I might look like the one, but that's not me. But for almost 100 years, Grace Bible Church has been true to the basic doctrinal statement those men and women believed way back when. And I think that's so essential. And I think that's why God has blessed our church. Along with scripture, there's worship, the Lord's table, prayer, fasting, serving, giving, witnessing, helping, loving, etc., etc. The tried and true spiritual disciplines that we've established in our lives. We all need to be taking periodic spiritual inventories and regular spiritual checkups. Tuesday morning, I have an appointment with my family doctor for a regular checkup. You know, check your blood pressure, get your blood taken, you know. He's going to tell me I eat too much chocolate. But I already knew that. I don't need him to tell me that. But I need that to stay healthy. I need a spiritual checkup regularly to stay spiritually healthy. Because if you're like me, I can get very spiritually sloppy. And some of those fruits begin to wane. And some of those habits of the flesh begin to sneak into my life. And that's what Peter is talking about here. None of us can be sinless, but what God is doing is he's perfecting us to be in the image of his son. So where's the evidence of God's perfecting work in my life? Where can I see that happening? These are very important questions that we all need to keep in front of us.